We now enter into the final chapter of Galatians, and it has been quite a journey that started uh, back in early June, and as we've made our way through Galatians, we've, we've come to understand, or at least I hope we've come to understand, that, that grace, God's grace, is so important, and there's this temptation to veer off course periodically when it comes to God's grace and think that we need to add something to it. And so Paul argues with them, and he says this is what needs to happen. He lays out a very clear-cut case about it. And now for the next, for this week and and in a couple weeks, uh, we, we see that Paul again gets very practical. One of the things that happens so often in our, in our lives with Christ is that sometimes we can get so theoretical that we forget that we have a responsibility to live this out. And so that's what Paul's talking about here in Galatians chapter 6. And so I invite you to turn your Bibles there uh, to Galatians chapter 6, and we'll take a look at these first 10 verses in Galatians 6. And if you, have a, if you want to use the Pew Bible, I think it's on page 975 in that area there. And if you have it on, the, on your app, on your phone, you know what to do. So uh, scroll there. So we're at Galatians 6, starting at verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Father, we would ask now that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, guide us as we take time to look at this passage. And we would ask now also for our good friend Rob, as he preaches up in Hollister, we would pray that your Holy Spirit would, would use him in great ways there as he presents your good news to the people in Hollister. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to help us here and that you would continue to open our ears so that we can hear this wonderful message of grace, that you would open our eyes so that we can see how your grace changes people's lives, that you would open our minds to help us understand how that happens and and help us understand how we can be a part of doing the good work that you've called us to do, and that you would open our hearts that we would be transformed to be the very people you desire us to be that are filled with grace and humility and joy and peace and compassion. So Lord, we lift this time to you. We pray that no one would hear anything that I say, but that they would only hear what it is that you want them to hear and need them to hear. And that for all of us, we would look to you and fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, 
You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Every single one of us has been there. Every single one of us, if we haven't been there, we will be there at some time. And it's this, it's that there are these times in all of our lives when, quite frankly, we blow it. We know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. Or we do the very things that, that, that we shouldn't do, or we don't do the things that we should do. Romans 7 is so clear on this about Paul's struggle with, with sin and, and, and its constant bombardment in our lives and this battle that happens. And Paul understands that. So it's one of the things that I love so much about Paul is he understands real life. He understands that in the midst of what we're going through in life, there are going to be times when we blow it. If that wasn't true, he would not open up with this statement of if someone is caught in a sin, because if, if it wasn't true that, that people are going to continue to struggle with sin, he wouldn't need to put this there. But he puts it there because it is true. It is true. People struggle with this. People struggle with sin all the time. And, and here's a quick list, just as you, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but here's a quick list of people who've blown it, yet the Lord work to bring about restoration in their lives. Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 royally blew it, but yet God reaches in and restores them. Abraham lied, and God restored him. Moses murdered someone, yet God restores him. David commits adultery, yet God restores him. Samson had a little bit of an issue with anger, among other things. Yet God restored him. The entire Israel, all the Israelites, battled with idolatry again and again and again, yet God constantly restored them. Peter denies Jesus Christ not once, not twice, but three times, and God restores him. Jesus Christ restores him. The apostle Paul persecutes the church, had people thrown in jail, even had people, even had people killed, and yet God reaches in and restores him. I think you get the point. God is a big fan of restoration. God understands what's involved in restoring people, and he does it very well. The thing that strikes me as odd, though, is that in our lives, and if we were to take the time and hear everybody's story here that, that's placed their trust in Christ, we would hear this, that our life was going nowhere, or our life was really in a lot of struggle, and yet God came in and restored my life. We would hear that story throughout this, throughout this room. But what strikes me as odd is this, is that after being restored, so often when we have a brother or sister caught in a sin, we tend to forget about restoration and we focus entirely on condemnation. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. He doesn't say condemn them. He doesn't say get rid of them. He doesn't say you have nothing to do with them. He says you should restore them gently. I invite you to turning your Bibles all the way back to John chapter 8. And we encounter this, it's a rather uh, significant story in the Gospels. And it illustrates our propensity to condemn rather than restore. We pick it up in verse 2 of John chapter 8. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around them and he sat down to teach them. 
the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until Jesus was left, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. These women, this woman is caught in adultery. And what, what, one of the things, and we're not going to talk about this extensively, one of the things I find interesting is it takes two to commit adultery. Where's the guy? But that's for another day. So this woman is caught in adultery. They bring her, they stand her before this group, and everybody there has a stone. According to the law, they had every right to stone this woman to death, and that's what their intent was. Their intent wasn't to restore this woman. Their intent was, we want condemnation, and it needs to happen. And so they're standing there with their stones in their hands, and they're saying, this is what we need to do. What do you think, Jesus? And Jesus begins, and we don't know what he wrote on the ground. We have no idea what he's writing. Some people say that he's starting to write down different sins that people have committed in that crowd. We don't know. We just know that he's writing on the ground and something began to hit the people that, you know what? We're in trouble here. We're in trouble and they begin to drop their stones and walk away. And Jesus says, has anyone, where, where is everybody? What, what happened? Has anyone condemned you? And, and, they, and she says, no one has condemned me. Here's what's interesting is that, Jesus, that this woman is dragged before Jesus in front of this entire group of people. She's in trouble and yet she's the only one there left and she now has an audience with Jesus Christ. Imagine that. Caught in adultery, and now you're one-on-one -on -one with Jesus Christ. The one who could have condemned. The one who could have said, it's over for you. But what does he do? He says, has anyone condemned you? No one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus Christ looks at her and he says, I'm not condemning you. But here's what, and I think we need to deal with this. He's all about restoration because the last line he says to her is this, go now and leave your life of sin. Be restored. Jesus doesn't look blindly at this and say it's no big deal. He says, rather than condemning you, I want to restore you. That's why I've come here. And so perhaps you're here this morning and you're battling through something and you're, and you're dealing with sin in your life. All of us are. But what strikes me as, as important is that this community of faith, First Baptist Church of, of Salinas, we need to be about restoration, not condemnation. Because when we look to restore people through God's grace, great things happen. Great things happen. 
But unfortunately, unfortunately, we focus more on the condemnation than the restoration. And he says this, but watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Paul understands that the human, that he understands that humanity has issues, that humanity can fall at any time. But, and he knows this, that we need to come alongside one another in this battle. That's why he says, carry each other's burdens. We need people in our lives to come alongside us and carry, carry us through these different things that are going on in our lives. Galatians 6.2 is our theme verse for the reason why we have life groups. And I encourage you to be involved in a life group as we get ready to launch them in the next few weeks and and get involved in one because life groups help people come alongside one another and help people care for one another and walk with people through life because all of us get burdened. It might not simply be our sinfulness that burdens us. It can be other things that happen in life that drag us down, that weigh us down. We need one another to come alongside one another. And this thing that he says here is, and in this way, get this, you will fulfill the law of Christ. He doesn't say, yeah, it's a nice thing to do. He says, you will fulfill the law of Christ. That's a huge thing. That's something that we should say, wow, I need to be involved. I need to care for those around me. I need to carry the burdens of other people around me. And then he says this in verse 3, if anyone thinks they are something when they are nothing, they deceive themselves. If you were to go into my office and you would find the notes that I, that I write down about the different passages I'm preaching, when I came to verse 3, I wrote this in the, margin, in the margins. I said this, I said, we are good at deceiving ourselves. We think that we're better than what we really are. We also think that we're worse than we really are. And we have this propensity to forget that we desperately need one another and that we can fall just as easily as anyone else. I invite you to turn back in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14 and we get to interact with this guy who's arguably the most popular, most popular and well-loved apostle because he's so much like us. In Mark 14, starting at verse 27, Jesus is talking to the apostles, and, and, it's, it, and he knows this, in a matter of hours, it's over for him. He'll be put on a cross, he'll be crucified. And we pick it up in verse 27, where Jesus says this, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Real quick tangent. Jesus knows he's going to die, but here's what's great about knowing that he's going to die. Notice what he says. He says, after it's all said and done, I'll meet you in Galilee. He knows he's going to rise from the dead. He doesn't go into the crucifixion saying, boy, I hope this works out. All right? He goes to the cross knowing that there's going to, he's going to come out the other side. And so often we enter into those times in our lives that are real difficult, forgetting that, we, that through the grace of God, we can get to the other side. That's the way our God operates, because remember, he's a huge fan. He's a huge proponent of restoration. So he says, after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into, in, into Galilee. Verse 29, 
Peter declared, if all fall away, if all fall away, now keep in mind, he's there with his buddies, the other 11. He says, listen, if all these other people that have been walking with you for three years, if they all fall away, I won't. Now, if you're one of Peter's buddies, what's going through your mind at that time? Are you kidding me, Peter? You just threw me under the bus. But Peter says, no, I can do it. I can handle this. And then Jesus looks at him in verse 30 and says, truly I tell you, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And I love verse 31. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ knows the human condition better than humans know the human condition. And when Jesus Christ says you're going to blow it, you need to simply, instead of arguing with him, say, you're wrong on this. You need to say, oh, wow. You're right, I'm wrong. But Peter argues emphatically as if that's going to get him through it. And we know what ends up happening in just a little while. Peter scurries away, runs away, quicker than a cockroach runs away when the lights are turned on. He takes off. He takes off. You see, we need to pay attention, and, this is, and then look what happens. He says this, if anyone thinks there's something when they are nothing, they deceive themselves. Don't deceive yourself. Accept the fact that, that you're broken. Accept the fact that I'm broken. Accept the fact that, that, if, that if, if not for the grace of God, there go I. We should be people of restoration, not of condemnation, because each one of us needs to be restored constantly. And then Paul continues on, and he says this in verse 4, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their, with their, instruction, with their instructor. Each one should test their own actions. We are to be restored. We are also to receive. We are to receive instruction and we are to pay attention to our lives. Each one should test their own actions because when we test our own actions, we see who we truly are. In 1960, Israeli undercover agents orchestrated the most, one of the most daring kidnappings of one of the worst of the Holocaust masterminds, a guy by the name of Adolf Eichmann. After capturing him in his South American hideout, they transported him to Israel to stand trial. There, prosecutors called forth a, 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 just this long line of former concentrate camp, concentration camp prisoners as witnesses, and witness after witness after witness accused Eichmann and shared with the people the heinous things that he did. And one of the last people that was called was a guy by the name of Yehiel Dinur, who miraculously escaped death in Auschwitz. 
And on his day to testify, Dunor comes into the courtroom and stared at Eichmann, who is behind bulletproof glass. He stares at Eichmann, and the tension in the courtroom built exponentially. As they stared at one another, Dunor looks at him, the man who had murdered many of his friends, the man who personally executed a number of Jews and presided over the slaughter of millions more. As their eyes met, the victim, Dunor, and this murderous tyrant, the courtroom fell silent. Tension continued to build because a confrontation of, of humongous significance is about to take place. But no one was prepared for what happened next. As Denua looked at the man, he began to shout and he began to sob and he collapses to the floor. Everybody couldn't figure out what was going on, and, and they realized perhaps he's overcome with hatred. Perhaps he's bringing all these horrific memories are coming back to his mind. Perhaps he's overwhelmed by this evil that he sees in Eichmann's face. No one understood why he fell to the ground and was sobbing. But he sat there sobbing. And he later explained in a, in, a, in, a 60 minute in a 60 Minutes interview, it wasn't because of this evil that he saw in Eichmann. It was because Eichmann was not this demonic personification of evil that Dunur had expected. Rather, he saw Eichmann as an ordinary man just like anyone else. And in that one instant, Denur came to a stunning realization that sin and evil are the human condition. And he said this, quote, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this exactly like he. His remarkable statements caused Mike Wallace, the interviewer, to turn to the camera and ask the audience some very painful questions. How is it possible, and this is what he said, how was it possible for a man to act as Eichmann acted? Was Eichmann a monster, a madman? And then he slowed down and said this, or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he normal, just like you and me? Denier's shocking conclusion was this. Eichmann is in all of us. So when Paul says this in verse 4, each one should test their own actions, the reason why we do this is, is because we realize as we test our own actions that this evil, this, this propensity to do some horrific things resides within each one of us and we desperately need God's grace to carry us through. Each one should test their own actions. It's through this, through this constant examination where we receive God's grace that we then can go out and do what needs to be done. He says this, after you test your own actions, you can then take pride in yourselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Again, Paul understands the human condition, and our human condition says this, I'm going to compare myself to somebody else. 
Comparison shopping always leads to, it's, it's just a loss. It's a losing venture. And yet we do it all the time. We look at another person that we think we're better than, and instead of us coming alongside them and, and helping them, we sit there and we look down on them, and pride begins to fill us up, and it becomes all about us. Or perhaps we get around people that are so charming like myself, and you can't help but just say, I wish I was more like him. And we walk away defeated. That's a joke, by the way. Some of you got it. But in both instances, either we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, or we think more lowly of ourselves than we ought. When we compare ourselves to one another, it's always a losing venture. And the writer of Hebrews says this, he says, we should fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. For when we fix our eyes on him, there's no more comparison. It's just, he's my God, he's the one that I desperately need. For each one should carry their own load. And then verse 6, Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Christ followers are to be lifetime learners. Periodically, I say this in the ponder this, this email that goes out every Friday afternoon. Periodically, I, I ask this question, what have you learned about Jesus Christ over the course of the last six months? The reason why I ask that question is this, is that so often we forget to learn. We forget to say, Lord, what do you, how do you want to teach me? How do you want to guide me? And what Paul's driving at here is this, is that we need to be spending time learning from God, learning through life, and learning how he wants to work with us. And when we learn these things, we get to share them with other people. Had a conversation last week at the picnic a gentleman came up to me and we started talking and, and, and as I'm talking with him, I looked at him and I said, I so enjoy these interactions that we get to have. And the reason why is because it reminds me of, of who, how God is at work in the midst of our friendship, in the midst of our relationship and the different things that this person's working through and, and, and processing. This person's not a believer, but yet they're on that road and to encounter them, and to talk with them, and to, to answer their questions, and then for me to ask them questions. We are on this, we're in this together, and to my prayer for this individual, that, they'll, that eventually they'll come to, to, to say yes to God's grace in their life. We are to be lifetime learners. So I ask you this morning, what have you learned in the last six months about Jesus Christ? And perhaps a better question is this. What have you learned not about Jesus Christ, but what have you learned as you follow Jesus Christ and how he carries you through? Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. We are to be people of restoration. We are to be people who receive God's grace. And then in the midst of this, we are also to be refreshed. We are to be refreshed. Paul says this, that God is not to be mocked, that what you sow, you will eventually reap. If you're playing games with God, eventually it's going to come out. Eventually you're going to be found out. And in the process, it, 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 it strikes me. 
it strikes me as this, that common sense has become uncommon. The reality is this, what we sow, we reap, yet we live in a society that says, I can sow whatever I want, and, I'll, and, and, and I won't have to reap the, the repercussions of this. Every single day, we read another story. We read another story of somebody who sowed something, and now they're reaping the, 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 uh, the consequences of it, and they're, they're throwing up their arms saying, I didn't think this would happen. Really? You falsified documents. There are consequences to that. That's what Paul's driving at here is, is get right with God. And as you get right with him, as you sow seeds of the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. We get involved with him. We, we, we walk with him through life. And the reason why we do that is because he's the only one that can truly refresh us. He's the only one. Verse 9, let us not become weary in doing good. Do you notice what Paul says here? Let us not become weary. Why would he say let us not become weary? Here's why. Because we become weary. <laughs> doing good wears us out. There is an actual, and, and some of you had, and some of you said this to me last week. You said, you said you made that up about sitting disease. There is no such thing. Well, I read it on the internet. It has to be true. But I can tell you this. First off, sitting disease is real. You can look that up, and doctors talk about it. But here's the other thing that is true. Doing good takes energy, and it takes energy out of us. We become weary. We become, we, we, we struggle so much with this. And what Paul's saying here is, how do we not become weary in doing good? For at the proper time, will we reap a harvest if we do not give up? Notice that word he uses, reap. What are we reaping? We're going to reap the eternal life that God gives us by sowing seeds with him, by spending time with him, by getting refreshed. We get refreshed so that we can refresh others. Compassion fatigue is real. We just don't, we, we, we look at people and we want to help them, but we have nothing in the tank. Why? Because we ourselves need to be refreshed. Therefore, verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Let us do good to all people as we have opportunity, and there are opportunities every single day in each one of our lives to do the good that God's called us to do. I'm not going to list all these different possibilities, but you know what I'm talking about. There's common sense here. When you see the good you ought to do, you ought to do it. Not so people can say, wow, wasn't that a good thing you did, but so that people can say, wow, look at how God is working in their lives. There are opportunities around, and we need to be refreshed so that we can do the good that he has called us to do. And then we have to accept this truth, that sometimes in life, we need someone who never misses an opportunity to do good. We need somebody who looks into our lives and into the lives of other people and says something needs 
to change. In your Bibles, go back to Isaiah chapter 59. And the prophet Isaiah writes some very, very profound words, especially in light of what we just read in Galatians 6. Starting at verse 15, the prophet writes this, Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Yahweh looked and was displeased that there was no justice. Folks, we live in a world where justice is uncommon many times. So Yahweh looks and is displeased that there was no justice. Verse 16, He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. God sees humanity's situation and He's appalled that nobody is doing anything about it. Middle of verse 16, So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, people will fear the name of Yahweh, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of Yahweh drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares Yahweh. God never misses an opportunity to do good. He saw our situation and he came and did something about it in Jesus Christ. Yes, we grow weary in doing good, but Jesus Christ does not grow weary in doing good because he knows how to restore. He knows how to help people receive his grace. He knows how to refresh people. And perhaps you're here this morning, you need to be refreshed. We have a God who has A pluses all over the board in refreshing humanity. Do you need to be refreshed this morning? Do you need to be restored this morning? My prayer is that we would receive His good grace. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and, and, and get ready to, 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 uh, to walk us through these next couple of songs. And as they come up, I want to use this opportunity to, to remind us that God doesn't miss an opportunity. And perhaps today is that opportunity for you to be restored. Perhaps today is that opportunity for you to receive God's grace. Perhaps today is that opportunity for you to be refreshed. Yes, it may very well be difficult in your life right now, but we have a God who breaks through the difficulties and says, I know what I'm doing. Trust me, I've got this. Father, we pray. As we reflect on these words in these moments of, of silence, we would ask that you would bring to mind how we need to be restored, how we need to receive, and how we need to be refreshed.
And Lord, we thank you that you roll up your sleeves and you get involved in the restoration that needs to happen in all of our lives. And I thank you that you look at us with not eyes of condemnation, but you look at us with eyes of restoration and refreshment. And so, Lord, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would move in such a way that we could be receptive to your work, that healing work that only you can do because you never weary from doing good. And we pray.